Uh, this morning we shall con continue the series for this month uh, on biblical giving. Um, last week we sought to consider what is biblical giving from 1 Corinthians 29. Uh, we saw that biblical giving is willing, biblical giving is full-hearted, biblical giving is worshipful. We also sought to consider why do we give from Philippians 4 verse 10 to 18. We saw that giving is an opportunity to display the love of Christ. We saw that biblical giving is gospel fellowship in action. Uh, we also saw that biblical giving meets the needs of those whom Christ loves. Uh, Christian giving secures heavenly treasure. And then lastly, we saw that Christian giving is well-pleasing to God. This morning, <clears throat> I'd like us to consider from 2 Corinthians chapter 8, uh, two, two, uh, chapter 8, verse 16 to 24, and chapter 9, verse 1 to 14, on handling church funds, um, as well as principles of charitable giving. So let's turn to Second Corinthians chapter 8, verse 16 to 24. <clears throat> 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 16-24. I'll read. But thanks be to God, who put into the heart of Titus the same earnest care I have for you. For he not only accepted our appeal, but being himself very earnest, he is going to you of his own accord. With him we are sending the brother who is famous among all the churches for his preaching of the gospel. And not only that, but he has been appointed by the churches to travel with us as we carry out this act of grace that is being ministered by us for the glory of the Lord himself and to show our goodwill. We take this course so that no one should blame us about this generous gift that is being administered by us. For we aim at what is honorable, not only in the Lord's sight, but also in the sight of man. And with them, we are sending our brother, whom we have often tested and found earnest in many matters, but who is now more earnest than ever because of his great confidence in you. As for Titus, he is my partner and fellow worker for your benefit. And as for our brothers, they are messengers of the churches, the, of the churches, the glory of Christ. So give proof before the churches of your love and of our boasting about you to these men. <clears throat> Remember, we had looked at the first part of this chapter and. Uh, we saw that Paul is writing to the saints in Corinth relating to the saints in Jerusalem who are needy. <clears throat> and we saw that he uses the example of the Macedonian uh, giving to show them how their financial gift is to be handled so that it can be faithfully stewarded. So what we have here is the handling of the monies of God's people how it should be done appropriately. 
Paul has been urging the Corinthians to voluntarily prepare gifts for the saints in Jerusalem. And in order to encourage them, he has set an example for them of the Macedonian Christians uh, and their selfless generosity in chapter 8, verse 1 to 5. He has also set for them an example of Jesus Christ, who, though rich, became poor for them. He also told them that their giving to the Corinthians should be turned into action because uh, we see that there was willingness on their part to give to the church in, in Jerusalem a year ago. He also tells them that their giving should be proportional to their ability. They should be able to give to meet the basic needs of other believers. <clears throat> He's not saying that uh, <clears throat> if I have a land, uh, let's say the land costs 10 million, that I should sell it necessarily so that I can give to other Christians who do not have a land so that we can be we can be equal. That's not what he's saying. Uh, he's saying that we should be able to support other Christians, but our support for them should not be for their indulgence. It should be for their basic needs, food, shelter, and clothing. So Paul, having told them, um, <clears throat> the Corinthians to give their financial support, the, the concern in this uh, section turns to how is the money going to be handled? Isn't it? The question then becomes, who's going to be in charge of this money that is going to be given? How is the money going to be handled with integrity? And so here we see a model given to us by Paul on how the church ought to follow through in the handling of its finances. The funds of the church should be handled with accountability, transparency, so that there is no suspicion of where the money went to. And so it is very imperative that the funds of the church be handled in a careful and proper manner because when that is done, when that is not done, sorry, it brings distrust on the part of the people. When money is not handled well, someone will ask himself, why should I give? Isn't it? Why should I give when the money is mismanaged, misappropriated, misused? And so the giving of the Christians become dampened because the funds are not handled well. We are all aware of the churches that um, on a large scale lack any transparency and the result is the gospel suffers. The result is people see Christianity as a vehicle for the fulfillment of the greed of a few people. Let me also say that when someone subverts the church funds, that person is brought under severe judgment. Uh, you remember the story of Judas? He's not the last person to misappropriate funds of God's people. We read in scripture that he was a thief and he was in charge of the bag. So that when the disciples received donation for the work of ministry, they kept that money in the bag 
and Judas was in charge of it. But he was a thief. And as a result of taking God's money, it continued to the point that he sold the Lord for 30 pieces of silver and he went on to commit suicide. You see, the person who misappropriates the funds of the church is also destroyed. You recall of Gehazi, Elisha's Elisha's, uh, servant. He was struck with leprosy when he used religious fundraising for personal gain. You remember Naaman was to go and wash himself seven times in the river and Elisha did not want any of those gifts that had been brought by by Naaman um, um, to be returned. And he follows him up and um, is struck by leprosy. Money is for the Lord's work. It should be used for the advantage of the cause of the gospel. We are all familiar with the story of Ananias and Sapphira when they were struck dead for lying as regards to the gift to the church. So whether it is Judas Iscariot, Gehazi, Ananias or Sapphira, the abuse of church funds destroys the abuser himself. And so the point is God takes seriously deception, deceit, greed, embezzlement that regards to the money that is given to his work. And so we do not mess with the church funds. And it is regarding this concern that is the subject of Paul's instruction to the Corinthians. And I'd like us to examine his instructions here regarding the handling of church funds. Notice the first thing. The first thing is properly qualified people need to be appointed to handle church funds. Properly qualified people need to be appointed to handle church funds. I want you to to notice the people who are appointed to handle the funds here. First one was Titus. Look at verse 16. But thanks be to God who put into the heart of Titus the same earnest care I have for you. Titus was a selfless saint. He loved the saints in Corinth. God had put a love and a concern for Titus, for the saints in Corinth. And Paul is saying here, thanks be to God that he put that care in the heart of Titus for the saints in Corinth. So Titus had a special love for the brethren there. And this love and honest care he had for them moved him to help them, especially in the matter of giving. Verse 17 says, For he not only accepted our appeal, but being himself very honest, is going to you of his own accord. Titus had wanted to serve them. Paul had instructed Titus to go and serve the the church in Corinth. But he says here that even in spite of that instruction, he wanted to serve them out of his own accord. So he's doing it out of his own heart. Um, He had been involved in the ministry of these people. 
Second uh, Corinthians 7 7, if you go back a bit, it says, And not only by his coming, sorry, but verse 6, but God who comforts the downcast comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you, as he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced still more. So Titus was greatly was a great source of comfort to them. He showed his concern, his earnest desire to serve them. Verse 13 of chapter 7 says, Therefore we are comforted, and besides our own comfort, we rejoiced still more at the joy of Titus, because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. See, when Titus went to these people, uh, you remember this church had a problem, but Titus saw their genuine repentance, their godly sorrow, and his spirit was knit with the Corinthians. He ministered to them, and these people responded well. And as a result of their godliness, humility, and repentance, he fell in love with them. And I had extreme affection for them. And so he was ready to minister to them in any way he could. And so we see here an example of a tremendous selfless lover of God's people. He was also a trusted co-worker of Paul, the apostles. In chapter 8, verse 23, he says, As for Titus, he is my partner and fellow worker for your benefit. And as for our brothers, they are messengers of the churches, the glory of Christ. And so Titus was an apostolic representative of Paul. And he was sent to implement doctrine and practice uh, of what uh, the apostle had established. And so he was a faithful man. He was a man willing to do what he had been told for the accomplishment of the work of God. And so what we have here is a portrait of a man who was selfless. He had a servant's heart. He thought of others before himself. Such a person who thinks of others before himself can be trusted, isn't it? He's consumed with the love of others. Notice also that in verse 18 and 19, we're told, we're told of two unnamed brothers who accompanied him. Verse 18 and 19 says, With him we are sending the brother who is famous among all the churches for his preaching of the gospel. And not only that, but he has been appointed by the churches to travel with us as we carry out this act of grace that is being ministered by us for the glory of the Lord himself and to show our goodwill. So we do not know of this brother. We don't know of his name. But what matters here is his character. We're told that he was, he was widely known, widely respected, widely esteemed among the churches in Macedonia. 
for his effort to do what? To preach the gospel, end of verse 18. So this was a person for sure who had evangelized in several churches. He had a proven heart for the work of the gospel. This was a man that lived the gospel and preached the gospel. And so he was not only respected among the churches in Macedonia, he was sent to oversee their collection. And so he was a man of wide respect. And Paul had chosen Titus for the administration of this gift and these Macedonian brothers. Notice there's another brother in verse 22. Verse 22 says, And with them we are sending our brother whom we have often tested and found honest in many matters. But who is now more honest than ever because of his great confidence in you? So here we have another unnamed brother. We have no way of knowing his name. But what matters here as well is his character, isn't it? We are told that he was he is a man proven to be diligent in a variety of tasks. And so his character had been proven over a period of time. And so we are told here that these four people, Titus, uh, sorry, this uh, Paul, Titus, and the two brothers had confidence in the Corinthians for their generosity towards the poor saints in Jerusalem. That there was great expression that they are willing to give abundantly. So there was that confidence. And so we have, in summary, four people here who are responsible for the handling of the church funds. They were selfless servants. They were widely known among the churches. They served and lived for the cause of the gospel. They were diligent. They loved the people of God. They were chosen and authorized by the churches in order to handle the funds. You see, only men of proven character and reputation are qualified to do this. Only men who serve the gospel cause, men who are widely chosen and loved, only those can handle church funds. And so you don't employ unproven people, isn't it? To do the, ch- the work of handling the funds of the church. You see, the character here is a safeguard. Is a safeguard. We, we have a safeguard in terms of we know these people. Because we do not want to the church funds to be abused. So we must employ people of high character. We must employ people who fear God more than they love money. So properly qualified people need to be appointed to handle church funds. People of great proven character. That's the first point. Secondly, I want you also to notice the procedure, isn't it? The properly implemented procedures needed to be followed for the handling of church funds. Properly implemented procedures need to be followed for the handling of church funds. And the first thing i like us to see under this is there should be plurality of people who are involved in handling the church funds. There should be a plurality of people involved in the handling of church funds. In our passage here, there are four people, isn't it, who are involved. In 1 Corinthians chapter 16, 
वस्त्री Paul is saying now concerning from verse 1 now concerning the collection of the saints as I directed the churches of Galatia so you also are to do on the first day of every week each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper so that there will be no collecting when I come and when I arrive I will send those whom you credit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem You see there's also that plurality in that passage there isn't it because the more people are involved in the handling of the funds there will be less collusion isn't it less embezzlement less diversion of the funds you see apparently Judas was all alone isn't it in the management and the control of the bag and it was difficult for anyone to keep Judas in check See, when you have one person controlling the funds it becomes easy for them to misuse the money it's easier for them to be overtaken by greed but when you have three people four people who are overseeing the collection of the funds the likelihood of conspiracy or someone getting into temptation is greatly reduced the same example with Ananias and Sapphira they were two isn't it they they they, they lied and um and they they fell into sin. And so there's a safety in number when it comes to handling church finances. A plurality of people should be involved in the handling of church funds. And then secondly, under that uh, subheading, there should be a blameless transparency before God and man. Look at what Paul is saying here, verse 20. there should be a blameless transparency before God and man Paul says we take this course so that no one should blame us about this generous gift that is being administered by us for we aim at what is honorable not only in the Lord's sight but also in the sight of man So the provision that was made here Paul is saying for us to be blameless there ought to be transparency so that no one will call into question the contribution isn't it you remember Paul had a ton of enemies including uh, the church here in Corinth there were false teachers i remember what the false teachers were saying that Paul is an emissary for money that he was in the ministry for personal gain and as a result he does not want to pick he doesn't even write to the Corinthians to ask for financial help isn't it because he doesn't want to be accused of uh, of of doing ministry for personal gain he doesn't want to be accused of corrupt motives so Paul is saying I don't want to touch a dime He did not want to be a, a loophole for his enemies to accuse him of impropriety. Paul wanted to know beyond a shadow of doubt that their money was properly used. And Paul is saying it has to appear right before men, before God and before men. And so he voluntarily provided accountability 
and transparency. Openness was his policy. And so it's foolish to say, I do not care what people think. Even if you're properly handling every penny of the church, those who are serving alongside you should also know we should act in such a manner that people are compelled to see our integrity. Romans 12 verse 17 says, Romans 12 17, someone, someone can read for us. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to what? Give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of God. Give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of in the sight of who? The sight of all. In the sight of God in the sight of all men. And because there's that accountability and transparency, people can see the, the church the church money managed well. What do you think is the result? What's the result in verse 24? <clears throat> what is the result in verse 24 of 2 Corinthians 8? Because of the transparency, accountability, what will it bring? Yes. Sorry? Uh, to prove to those who doubt them. Yes. Yes, there's proof of that, but what will what will result to it? What is the result of it? Not not quite. What is being said in verse twenty four? Paul what is Paul asking there? Remain true to the testimony we are giving about you. <clears throat> Something close to that. Let me say, because there is transparency and accountability, Paul, in verse 24, can boldly ask the people of God to give. Isn't it? He says, so give proof before the churches of your love and of boasting about you to these men. Prove your sincerity by giving. Prove your earnestness by giving. Because Paul had implemented such carefulness in the handling of the finances, he could confidently go to the people and say, you need to give because your gifts will not be abused. If you are a person of integrity, dealing with confidence, then you can give proper safeguards. So, sorry, so you can you can put proper safeguards, and you can confidently request for help. And so, these are principles that facilitate the process of giving. Uh, we've seen that properly qualified people need to be appointed to handle church funds. We've also seen that properly implemented procedures need to be followed for the handling of church funds. And for that to happen, there should be plurality of people handling the church funds and there should be blamelessness 
and transparency before God and before man. Question, comment before we move to chapter 9 of 2 Corinthians. The principles of charitable giving. move to 2 Corinthians chapter 9. I'd like to read from verse 1 to 15. <clears throat> now it is superfluous to me, sorry for me, to write to you about the ministry for the saints. For I know your readiness of which I boast about you to the people of Macedonia, saying that Achaia has been ready since last year and your zeal has stirred up most of them. But I'm sending the brothers so that our boasting about you may not prove empty in this matter. So that you may be ready, as I said, you should be. Otherwise, if some Macedonians come with me and find that you're not ready, we will be humiliated to say nothing of you for being so confident. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you and arrange in advance for the gift you have promised, so that it may be ready as a willing gift, not as an exaction. The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under, under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely, he has given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By the approval of this service they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others, while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. So the point here in chapter 9, Paul is trying to tell them, giving is never a loss to yourself. The church in Jerusalem had become poor to the point that they did not have their basic needs. And here Paul is writing to the church in Greece, in Corinth, about the need of caring for this church. And so <clears throat> if you notice the, the name there, Achaia. So the church in Corinth was situated in the southern part 
of the modern country of Greece. That southern path was called Achaia, which is, uh, you see there in verse, verse 2. <clears throat> and so Achaia was the designation of the church, the area of that church in Corinth. Macedonia is in the region of the northern Greece, was on the northern part of the country. And uh, <clears throat> the churches in Macedonia and Achaia were ready, and Paul here sets principles that should guide their giving to other Christians. And here we'll see a number of principles. And the overall principle is giving is never a loss to yourself. Actually, one of the reasons people are hesitant to give is because they think when I give, I will lose. And the thrust of this chapter is telling us you do not lose. Isn't it? And the example of a farmer is used here to show us that the farmer doesn't take the seed, plants them into the ground and think that they are losing. Rather, the farmer, as he plants the seed, expects to get that seed back and even more, isn't it? <clears throat> and they will get it back on the degree of how, um, <clears throat> of, of how they, they sow, isn't it? Uh, getting it back is up to God. The degree of, pros- the degree of production is dependent on God, isn't it? The timing is dependent on God. And so you can give cheerfully. You can give freely. You can give unto the Lord. But to know that it is not in vain. You're investing in the kingdom of God. Paul is also telling them that you're investing in your own, in your own welfare. Because you're doing it with cheerfulness. When the farmer is planting the seed, he knows that he's doing it for the well-being of his future, isn't it? The same thought is is captured here. And so, <clears throat> like us to see the purpose of Paul's messengers in verse 1 to 5, then we shall continue under this section. Paul is saying in verse 2, For I know your readiness of which I boast about you to the people of Macedonia, saying that Achaia has been ready since last year, and your zeal has stirred up most of them. You see, the, the need and the motivation to give by the church in Achaia had been motivated by who? By the church in Macedonia, isn't it? And though they had that motivation to give, they are not follow that motivation um, uh, with with their deeds. Uh, th- their collection had not happened, and uh, we saw that it could be possible that false teachers had actually um, been the stumbling block for their collection of money. Probably they were slandering Paul over his motives, and uh, Paul is telling them, "Turn your motives, turn your intentions into actions." For a year now you've wanted to give. Paul here will soon travel with a delegation from Macedonia, with a gift from Macedonia. And he's telling them, when I come to Corinth, I do not want to be embarrassed. Look at verse 
verse verse four. It says, "Otherwise, if if some Macedonians come with me, so he's coming to Corinth via Macedonia, and he's saying, if Macedo- if if some Macedonians come with me and find that you're not ready, we will be humiliated. To say nothing of you for being so confident, we are so confident of you, and we hope that when we come from Macedonia with some Macedonians." That will not be embarrassed. And you see there the idea that Paul had wanted them to give voluntarily, to give thoughtfully. Um, that the giving should be done with a good attitude. He wanted them to give ahead of time, isn't it? Uh, so that it can be thoughtful. He did not want them to be pressured. He did not want them, when Paul was there already and they are not given, they'll be pressured into giving, isn't it? Paul wanted them to give earlier, to be to, to think about it. Verse 5 says, So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you and arrange in advance for the gift you have promised, so that it may be ready as a willing gift, not as an exaction. Paul had wanted them to give bountifully, cheerfully, and not begrudgingly, isn't it? And so he sent some brothers to go ahead and make arrangements. The second thing I'd like us to see from verse 6 to 14 is the principles of Christian giving here. Principles of Christian giving. And Paul is going to help us here, give us helpful guide in their giving. And the first thing is the principle of sowing and reaping with reference to ourselves. The principle of sowing and reaping with reference to ourselves. Both nature and the Bible make it clear that bountiful harvest is in proportion to the amount of sowing that has taken place, isn't it? Verse 6 says, the point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. That if you sow a little, you're going to get a little, isn't it? Just as a farmer, the farmer cannot plant one acre of land and expect to harvest 10 acres of production, isn't it? This principle is true in the natural realm. It's also true in the spiritual realm. Proverbs 11, 25 says, Whoever brings blessings will be enriched, and one who waters will himself be watered. That the one who gives liberally, liberally will have a fat return. Galatians 6 says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. What you sow is what you'll reap. What we give is what we have back. Both in terms of quality and in terms of quantity. Uh, Garbage in, garbage out, isn't it? If you have a bad program in your computer, if you put a bad program in your computer, you're going to get bad results, isn't it? If you put good input in your computer, you're going to get good output, isn't it? 
Um, this principle, Jesus says, give and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Christ is not talking about material possession or giving financially. He's talking here about forgiving others, judging others. And he's saying, when you forgive others, for instance, you'll be forgiven even more, isn't it? And so the principle is repeated over and over again. Verse 7 says, Each one must give as he has decided in his own heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. You're going to reap as much as you sow. If you want to reap a little, you're going to sow a little. And then he says, you decide in your heart the degree of blessing you want to receive. Isn't it? That kind of giving should not be begrudging or a sense of compulsion. It is to be done cheerfully. When the farmer is sowing the seed into the ground, he does not, not sow a grain of maize and say, and does it in a begrudging way, isn't it? And, and does it as if he's, he's being compelled or forced <laughs> to grow crops, isn't it? He does it cheerfully because he knows that when he gives, when, when, when he gives to the earth, the earth is going to return to him, isn't it, even more? And so he's seeing it as an investment for his future blessing. And so he does it voluntarily, cheerfully, gladfully. He sows the seed. And Paul is making the point, the money that you give to the poor is not a loss to you. It's an investment to your future blessing. Proverbs 19.17 says, Whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord. And he will repay him for his deed. I know false teachers really have manipulated these passages of scripture. But we should hold the truth of God, of God's word in a balance, isn't it? Because the, clearly the Bible says here that if you, lend to, if you give to the poor, you're lending to the Lord. And God is going to repay you back for your deed. Surely we are not giving because our motivation is to get back, isn't it? I, I think that's the place where false teachers have, have gone wrong. Um, we give because we love the Lord, we love God's people. Uh, we want to obey him. But the reward and the result of our giving is left to God, isn't it? Um, you can give a lot of money, uh, but God may choose not to bless you back with money, isn't it? He may, he may give you peace. He may give you uh, spiritual nourishment. He may give you other blessings that are incomparable to money, isn't it? And so we should be cheerful in our giving because God keeps good books and he rewards those who give so that the farmer can be cheerful in his sowing knowing that the earth will pay him back <clears throat> to fail to give is a sign of disbelief is a sign of lack of faith and really, it is an insult to God. It's an act of unbelief to God. Because the farmer does not put the seed on the ground and lack belief, isn't it? Does he lack belief whether he will gain his return? 
because to do that is an insult to the earth, isn't it? So to give to God or to fail to give to, to God with unbelief is to say, really God, I do not think you're going to pay me back, isn't it? It's to say that I do not think that God is going to operate according to the principles he has set. God loves a cheerful giver. And the cheerful giver is the one who believes in the promises of God. The farmer is cheerful, isn't it? Because he knows that there's going to be a return for his investment. He has belief. He has faith. Proverbs 22 verse 9 says, Whoever has a bountiful eye will be blessed, for he shares his bread with the poor. Why is he blessed? Because he gives to the poor, isn't it? <clears throat> Question, comment before I complete, finish up. Verse 8 says, and God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. He's saying, God is able to keep his promises. If you truly believe that God is able to, give his, to keep his promises, you're going to give cheerfully, isn't it? <clears throat> He's saying, here's a great encouragement for your giving. God is able to make every gift of grace abound towards you. When you give, God is able to make that grace abound back to you. You'll have all sufficiency in all things. That is what he's saying there in verse 8. God is able to give you in abounding passion because he's able. Verse 9 and 10. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. So verse 10 is a prayer based on that passage. Uh, that he quotes, um, is it Psalm 112? Uh, verse 9, he quotes, he has, as it is written, he has distributed freely, he has given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. And so verse 10 is a prayer based on that passage. That whoever supplies, whoever disperses abroad and gives to the poor, He's saying there that it will accrue to him in what? In the harvest of righteousness, isn't it? The end of verse 10. And so it's a prayer for them that God may increase their fruit of grace as they give to the poor because God is the one who ministered, ministers seed to the sower. And so verse 10 is making the point when you give to the poor, spiritual blessing abound. We may as well experience material blessing but that is uh, the prerogative of God isn't it verse 11 <coughs> you will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way which through us will produce thanksgiving to, do, to God you see when you understand this you are able to face the question can I possibly lose by giving to the poor and you're able to see the folly of giving begrudgingly. Because giving begrudgingly, you're cutting yourself off from the blessing of God. It is to rob yourself of the blessing of God. 
Um, and that tells you that you're selfish, isn't it? When someone is close-fisted, heartless, begrudging, really, they are hurting themselves, isn't it? They are cutting off their own blessings. Just like a farmer, when he decides to put seeds, let's say, two meters apart, he decides to be to, to be close-fisted. Come colony. <laughs> he will reap a little, isn't it? Yeah. Secondly, the, I want you to see verse 11, the principle of thanksgiving and praise with reference to God. He says, you'll be enriched in every way, to be generous in every way, which through us will produce what? Thanksgiving to God. When we sow to the poor, there's something that will flow from us. And there's something that will flow to God. Thanksgiving, praise, worship flows to God. Paul here is motivated to give thanks and praise to God when he sees the saints in Corinth giving. When you give to the poor, you're not only meeting their own needs, but you're causing a symphony of praise and worship to arise to God out of their mouth of those whom you're giving to. So the giving here did not only meet the needs of the poor saints in Jerusalem, but it stirred up praise and thanksgiving to God. And so here's another reason to give, isn't it? It brings praise to God from his people, thanking him. The saints in Jerusalem are going to look at the saints in Greece and they're going to praise God, isn't it? If your desire is to see God's name glorified and magnified, then you should give to the poor, you should give to the Lord. Uh, Thirdly, I'd like you to see the principle of reciprocity in ministry. Reciprocity in ministry. I read from verse 12. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but also of overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others. Then verse 14, which shows reciprocity, says, while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. What he's saying here is that when we give, the people that, the the benefactors, are going to reciprocate it. They are going to, 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 to in turn show their gratitude. And what will the saints in Jerusalem do? We are told there, they're going to do what? Verse 14. <clears throat> what will the saints in Jerusalem do in verse 14? They're going to pray for them, yes. Anything else? They're going to long to see them, isn't it? Uh, Isn't that true that um, if someone was to 
provide funds for the buying of to, for the buying of the piece of land for the church will we not long to see that person isn't it will we not pray for that person isn't it that's what the church in jerusalem was doing they 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 had affection for that person they had affection for for these saints um <clears throat> Because there may come a time when, as much as the church in Corinth was rich, it may come a time when they will be poor, isn't it? And there may come a time when the church in Jerusalem, which is poor, may be rich, isn't it? And what will happen? The church in Jerusalem will will look back and reciprocate the same kind of generosity, isn't it? They'll be motivated to give back, isn't it? And so, in giving, <clears throat> there should be this reciprocity. Um, the idea there of longing as well is the idea of loving, loving back. That they loved the Corinthians back. So that in this giving, everyone is giving, isn't it? This church is giving their material possession to this other church, but the other church is giving back in return, isn't it? They're giving their love. They're giving their prayers to the saints there. Um, <clears throat> and so, even when people gives us, give, us, give us something, we should be able to reciprocate that generosity, isn't it? We should be able to pray for them. We should be able to, in turn, even love them. <clears throat> you see, God exercises this reciprocity, isn't it? What has God done? He has given us His Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Has given us as his gift. And what does God tell you? He tells you to present your body as a living sacrifice to him. And because of all this I've done to you, because of everything that I've done to you, reciprocate that in your life. Living a life uh, for the glory of my name. Another way that you can show reciprocity to other people is thank them, isn't it? A simple thank you is a fulfillment of this principle. When someone gives you something and you do not say anything, it's unchristian, isn't it? You say thank you to them, you praise God for the gift, and you pray for your benefactor. That's the same principle applied here. the nature of selfish people to receive, 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 receive. But it never crosses their mind that uh, I need to give back. Even if it's a simple token of appreciation of love. Um, isn't it? Because they are, for instance, they are rich people who do not need your gifts. They have everything. When they give you they don't expect you to give them anything material, isn't it? They expect you to thank them. They expect you to, um, to pray for them, isn't it? Yeah, so a small token of appreciation is, um, is, is very important. If there's no appreciation, the giver feels that he has been used, isn't it? 
Um, <coughs> it says in verse 15, thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. I close there um, to say that we have the best gift that God has given to us, our Lord Jesus Christ. And because of him, we have every other gift. Um, without Jesus Christ, there will be no other gifts, but only the wrath of God. Without the gift of Christ, there will be no fellowship with God. This is the best gift. There will be no health. There will be no food. There will be no blessing. There will be no happiness. There will be pain. There will be no blessing. The only thing we'll have without Jesus Christ is the wrath of God and the judgment of God. That's why we pray in his name, isn't it? Because all gifts come through him and him alone. And without him, there are no gifts to us. And so he is the inexpressible gift at the end there. He is the indescribable gift. Words cannot express how great that this gift is. May the Lord help us really that, um, that we may treasure Jesus Christ as the best gift. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for your word this morning. And uh, we pray that you may keep us from false teachers who have used these principles and uh, turn you into some kind of a vending machine. Uh, we pray that you may help us to hold these truths in a balanced way, uh, not to reject them because there's a tendency for us to swing to the other pendulum and not believe in them. Uh, these are your truth, these are your promises, Lord. Uh, we pray that you may help us, help us to value the indescribable gift, the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us that we will not be uh, captured by the things of this world to may value the best gift. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.